I'm starting a, a book of the Bible from the Old Testament, so buckle up. This is Ezra from the Old Testament, and I'll tell you what, opening this book up this week, which I had read a little bit before, but I really dove in this week, it was an overwhelming study and exercise for me. It was kind of like being a little kid and going up to a, a refrigerator box and expecting when you open the box to find a refrigerator there, just something simple and functional, but instead you opened up that box and there's another box. And then I opened up another box inside that box and another box. In other words, as I opened up Ezra, I was expecting just a simple story about the children of Israel coming out of exile, right? rebuilding the temple, right? Isn't that what you expect to find when you go to Ezra and then part two, which is Nehemiah? And instead, what I found is God is the centerpiece of this story and he has superintended all events of all times. And this is a key pivot point in the story of God's redemptive plan. And it all eventually is setting the table for the coming of Christ. I mean, in fact, Ezra, as I opened it up, opened up that box, there were arms and legs reaching to so many books of the other books of the Bible in the Old Testament that I had to go there. I had to dive into the prophecies of Isaiah and how Isaiah had specifically predicted a ruler from the east, which is Cyrus. We're just going to we're going to read about him in a minute. But Cyrus is that key player in terms of the exile and, and the um, release from exile for the children of Israel. And then in Jeremiah, this prophet who was on the scene in Jerusalem, comforting the captives in, in exile with uh, letters of comfort. He had warned them, listen, if you, if you sin and you keep living in paganism, then you're going to be launched in exile. And then Jeremiah is there preaching and comforting them as they come out of exile. Amazing connections. The book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1-1 is exactly the point in the story when the Jeru people of Jerusalem are taken into exile. The royal family, the royal court is launched into Babylonian captivity. Esther, where does Esther come into this? Well, Daniel chapters 1 through 6 talk about the first wave of the children of Israel coming out of exile. And then the events between chapter 6 and, and chapter 7... That's a 50-year chunk right there. That's the book of Esther. That's what's happening there. That's King Ahasuerus and all that. So I had to kind of reintroduce myself into the book of Esther. Man, I thought I was just picking a short little book of the Bible in the Old Testament, right? Just to dip myself in. And all of a sudden, I had to immerse myself into so much more. There's two prophets that are mentioned in the book of Ezra. And they're Haggai and Zechariah. They're the ones that are preaching at the end of this book of the Bible. They're the ones who, when, when the children of Israel are, are discouraged and, they, and the, the temple building stops and, and they're sort of blocked off from obeying God, they're the ones that preach and say, basically, obey God rather than man and keep going, keep following the Lord. They're the preachers that come onto the scene. And then it's the, you have kind of a story within a story here where Ezra is sort of, giving the, the capstone chapter to the Old Testament where the second temple is rebuilt and the walls in, in the book of Nehemiah are rebuilt around the city. And then there's 400 years of silence before the coming of Christ. But all the lineage in Ezra is pointing to the perfect Savior who's coming as the point of all of the story. And so it's all connected. 
Then there are some other themes that, that jumped out at me, even just the idea of a temple and how the, the first temple was built under David and Solomon's rule, and then it was destroyed. And then there's a second temple that is being rebuilt. And Jesus refers to that temple when he's here on earth and says, listen, if you, if you destroy this temple, and he begins to refer to himself, then in three days I'm going to rise again. And then guess what? In the New Testament church, who's, who's the cornerstone of the foundation of our temple? Jesus Christ and how we are living stones and we are the fulfillment of that picture in the Old Testament as God's temple. And not only are we his temple here, but we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth where all will be reconstructed in the future in heaven where we will worship God perfectly. So there were all kinds of themes jumping out at me. It was crazy. It really was. You know, I, I was told, um, I've been told this off and on, that I've got somewhat of a photographic memory. But you guys know better because you know by the second or third time that I shake hands with you and ask you your name again, that you know that I don't fully have a photographic memory. But it is kind of unique because my memory, I remember some things very clearly um, and some things I don't. And the things that I remember very clearly are typically, it's data that is put in a story. That's what I remember very clearly, whether it's a story from you know, an early circumstance in my childhood or, or something that I was told or a play that I've seen or a movie that I've watched or a book that I've read. I remember details from those things pretty clearly or counseling scenarios or conversations I've had where I talk to somebody. I can recount data very clearly when it comes to me kind of in the form of a story. And I think that's the genius of the Bible. Have you noticed how many times God uses story to communicate his truth? I mean, all of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is one grand story. And Ezra is a story within a story. So we're not just talking about history. We're not just talking about the politics of Israel. We're not even just talking about the theology that's connected from Genesis to Revelation. What we're talking about is a story, and it's a story about real people who lived 500 years before the birth of Christ, and a story where God was superintending over their lives. And I want this story to pop off the pages of Scripture and to transform your hearts and lives. So much more than just a history lesson. This is a real book of the Bible written 500 years before the birth of Christ, brought to the 21st century church to teach you some things. This story is about a people of God that are led by a premier leader in the Old Testament, Ezra, a scribe, a person who had the Old Testament law memorized. A guy who was mighty in the scripture. A leader from, from God coming out of a secular environment and leading a people into their homeland once again. This is a story, as I've titled the message, of changing worlds. It's where you have a people of God 
who were wrested away. They were cut off at the knees and brought into Babylonian captivity under the chastening hand of God. And they were there for 70 years. And this story is about them changing their mindsets. They're comfortable in Babylon and they're changing their mindsets, having to come home out of exile, being led by a man of the word of God. Let's see where it all begins in verse 1. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he might, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you all of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. What you have here is a situation where in, you know, basically 500 B.C., Jerusalem, God's city of Zion, had been sacked by Babylon, okay? Babylon, this, this ruling, overlording, tyrannical society and city that was, that was all over, um, you know, the, the Eastern world. And they had come in by God's command, and they had destroyed Jerusalem. The reason that the book of Lamentations is written is because of this scene. This is where the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar came in and burned up God's premier city. It was as if God was saying, listen to Jerusalem, if you want to live like pagans in immorality and idolatry, if you want to forsake my temple, my version of worship, if you want to do that, then so be it. Go live with them. They were warned a century and a half before by Isaiah. And they were warned again by the prophet Jeremiah that this was going to happen. And in fact, it did. In the book of Lamentations, you can see these awful scenes where the weeping prophet is saying that the smoke is rising and that the city is burning. And that's the sad state that Jerusalem found itself in. These were not the glory days even then of Jerusalem. You had already had the northern kingdom which had been ripped away. The ten tribes, ten of the twelve tribes had been taken into Assyrian captivity. And then Babylon and Bab Babylonia overtook them and came all the way down and crushed Jerusalem. These were very sad days. And at that point, probably it was between 100 and 200,000 people were taken captive. And that was not because that was a small amount of the people in Jerusalem, it's, it's that the three million 
Jews who had been taken out, you know, a millennia before, that had been taken out of captivity from the, from the hand of Pharaoh, it had shrunk down to a smaller population. It had kind of depopulated. And the, the, the land that they possessed at that point was not the vast expansive land between the Tigris and Euphrates. It had been shrunk down in oppressive circumstances to where now Babylon burned it up and it was basically like a third world country at that point there. And these 100,000 people were trucked off in exile. Three deportations happened. In the book of uh, Daniel 1.1, you have Daniel and kind of the royal family was taken first. And then in 2 Kings, it documents how there were several thousand soldiers and people taken off into captivity. And then finally, the third wave of deportation happened, and that's when they were burned to the ground. Jeremiah 25.11 says, The whole land shall become ruin and waste, and you will serve the king of Babylon. These are not glamorous, glorious days, but there was a promise that they would be rescued out of exile. And that promise actually comes even in Isaiah 54. It talks about how this person from the east, I mean, this is a century and a half before it happened, right? I mean, before even the captivity happened, Isaiah is saying, there's someone from the east that's going to rise up and he's going to be the king of Persia. He's called my shepherd in Isaiah, my servant, God's servant. He's going to be raised up. You know what this guy was? It was King Cyrus who was the king of Persia that took over Babylonia. Now, when I say he took over, I mean he was the leader par excellence because he led the whole you know, known world from India to Kush, from India to Ethiopia, from India to modern Turkey and down in Africa. That is a, a wide swath of the world that he was leading. That's what it means to be the king of Persia. And this man, as it says in verse 1 of Ezra 1, was stirred. He was roused up by the Lord. His spirit was, was, I don't know, invigorated to do something. But guess what? He was just a pawn. Just a little bitty man on the world that the Lord was working through. It's kind of amazing, you know, in terms of the story within the story. I mean, Cyrus's story would be one where he's saying, listen, you know, I'm leading the, the free world at this point. I've kind of taken over Babylonia. And you have some, some Jewish people here that are part of Jerusalem. And, and they've been in captivity. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, go ahead and send them back. And I'll send their little temple trinkets back with them. You know, they, they've been put in the, the Babylonian um, you know, God house over here, their temple worship. We're going to, well, we'll dignify them and I'll make this political move and prop, prop up Jerusalem a little bit again. I mean, I can leverage that later so I can get into Egypt and, and sort of politically take that place over too, you know, and so I'll send them back. That was sort of the smaller story. It was Cyrus having religious tolerance and saying, you know, I'll help them and I'll help some other people. But really, what was God doing? God was overruling that ruler and he was working his perfect will out that began in Genesis and will will be fulfilled all the way in Revelation 21 and 22. He was resetting up 
the temple of God, the worship of God, the purity of God, and the purity of the line of the tribe of Judah, where Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, could be born and come as the Savior of the world. Do you see a bigger story, a bigger story than Cyrus there? That's what's happening here in Ezra. That's what I got myself into this week in study. I have no idea what's going to come out next because I, I just you know, kept opening up more and more and more as I studied. Just to give you a little bit of um, some handles in terms of the book. The book um, of Ezra is 10 chapters long. Nehemiah, which is really part two to Ezra. It's really one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, as it was written in the Old Testament. Probably written by the scribe and chronicler Ezra himself. This, this book of the Bible is talking about the city of Jerusalem and the people of Judah being rescued out of exile. And they went in three deportations and they come back over 90 years back to their homeland to rebuild the temple. Ezra 1 through 6 talks about how the first wave of people returned and they returned under King Zerubbabel. We'll learn about that. And then and that was under the, the reign and rule of Cyrus. Then you have a second wave of people that come under Ezra himself. And that's chapters 7 through 10. And then the third wave where people come home will be Nehemiah. And this is under the leadership of Nehemiah. Well, that's been a good history lesson, right? I guess if we closed in prayer, we would have just gone to seminary or Bible class. But I want this to go to the heart. I know some of you, you history buffs are going, ooh, you know, all right, I'm going to Google, you know, the, the Persian, you know, domination and things like that. And you're going to look up these leaders and cross-check me on stuff. But, but for most of us, we're just trying to get through our week, right? We need some encouragement. We need some hope from God's word. And I want to give that to you because there was a couple things that really jumped off the pages at me into my heart this week. And I think they're for you as well. Well, if you're sort of outlining, let's just put the outline header up. Israel's return from exile, it forces two issues to the surface. This is where something from, you know, 5th century BC comes to the 21st century church. Two issues sort of bubble to the surface. Number one, the children of Israel returning from this captivity, their return exposes Israel's remaining sin making Israel decide which world they want to live in. Which kingdom do they want to now be a part of? That is a key issue in this text. In other words, it's one thing to physically come out of exile. It's another thing to spiritually come out of exile. What areas in your life do you need to come all the way to God forward in? I mean, what areas, what areas in your life do you still have pockets of exile where God, you know, doesn't fully have control of this or that in your life, right? These were people who had been in exile for 70 years in a worldly environment. They weren't under, you know, the crack of the whip of Pharaoh like, you know, the three million Jews were before in Egypt a millennia and some before. They were put up in Babylonian captivity and they were very tempted to live in an environment of worldliness and comfortableness and they were virtually invisible up there as God's nation and God's people. Did you catch that? 
It's being invisible because you're so enmeshed and so asleep in the world system. And God was calling them to come out of exile, but he was calling them to come all the way out of exile, even in their hearts. To come clear where they were back on mission for God because they were kind of asleep up there in the world. Now when I say in the world, please hear me on this. I, I don't mean that it's wrong to love the world or love culture or love the beauty of nature and creation and the arts and literature and, and even politics and the things in our society that we do enjoy and benefit from. What I'm talking about is the, the sinful idols of our hearts where we love the things of the world, where sinfulness pulls us away from God. And a major theme here is understanding that the children of Israel needed to come out of exile and come all the way back into God's country, God's kingdom. They needed to go all the way. The second theme is that their return exalts God's overruling power. What do I mean by that? I mean that God is ruling all of the nations and God's will always will be accomplished. And one point really feeds the other because as the children of Israel are struggling to come all the way home, the comfort there is that God's plan is always at work. He is always faithful. Always. Even in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah, this prophet who was feet on the ground in Jerusalem, he was trying to give sort of encouragement, support to those in exile. He wrote in Jeremiah 29, listen, you're, you're sort of on the outskirts of, of Babylon at that point, go ahead and build houses, get married, you know, um, be comforted at that point because in 70 years, at the 70 year point, you're going to be released home again. God's will is going to be accomplished. It's like um, Jesus' promise to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as your sin is exposed, Israel, realize that God is working. As you're called to get out of your comfort zone, to, to shake awake and come out of captivity and come out of exile and, and be part of this program, God's will is the underpinnings. It's overriding your circumstances. In other words, we're talking about a, a regular shoe leather faith, messy transition. That's what we're talking about. This is not a glamorous story where the children of Israel now are, you know, they're washing and cleaning themselves up and just transitioning back home to wonderful, sweet, promised land, Jerusalem. No, this is them coming back with their tails tucked between their legs, swallowing hard, saying, okay, I've raised my family here. I've built my house here. I've got a situation here where I'm living in a certain way. And now I'm needing to separate myself from that environment and transition back home to Jerusalem. I need to go back to where God wants me to be. It's a messy transition. It's a hard transition. It's a lot like areas in our lives where we have to think about what we're doing, think about what's still holding on to our hearts, perhaps holding us back from God's will, and we have to transition all the way back home. Let me show you something from Ezra chapter 3 that brings us out. It's one of the most emotional parts of the book. Ezra 3 verse 10. This is when 
the first wave of exiles came back home. This is where they came. They came to the spot where Solomon had built that temple and the temple had been burned down. Look at verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to the praise of the Lord. According to the directions of, the Dave, of David, king of Israel, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they heard the foundation, when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Here's the scene. You've got two crowds of people. You have young, exuberant people, and you have older, senior people who are weeping and crying. You have a crowd that's shouting for joy and singing the Davidic song that God is, has been faithful and is enduring with his love. And then you have people who are sad, who are weeping and wailing as loudly as those who are shouting for joy. What's going on here? Well, here's the scene. You have some people who were too young to be a part of the problem in the first place. They were in Jerusalem. They were either not born yet or um, under 20 years of age, and they're really not culpable or responsible for the sins that got them into Babylon in the first place. And so, you know, they had integrated themselves up there, perhaps been obviously been raised up there, but when God was sending them home, they were exuberant and excited and joyful to go back home and build this temple. They were excited. They were pumped up. Kind of reminds me of when I um, my wife and I built a house um, early in our marriage, and we were so excited day after day to see if the foundation was going to be laid. You know, is this ever going to happen? Is it ever going to start? We're contracted to build, and then finally the concrete was poured, and we're going, yes, we're so excited. That's kind of what the children of Israel were doing here. But then you had another crowd, and they were the older crowd, and they realized how their sin had got them in that mess in the first place. Decisions that they had made had got them held captive, had, had ripped them away, where they had been cut at the roots of who they were. Their identity had been sort of erased and they became invisible in a Babylonian culture. And now they're coming back, probably 100,000 people coming back and they're having to start over again. The aged people. And they don't like this transition because they're sad for the sins that they had committed that got them there in the first place. And so this new start is reminding them of the sins that, that made the temple be burned down in the first place. And they're sad over that. And they're weeping over that. And they're regretting their lives for what they had done. Have you ever been there? Do you ever sort of soul search and say, man, if I hadn't made this choice or that choice, I wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. This is why my life has turned out the way it has because I've suffered under the chastening hand of God. Well, God is 
sort of taking this messy situation and calling young and old both together to start over again and transition all the way out of exile, not just physically, but in their hearts to come all the way back to God. Later on in the story in chapters 9 and 10, we're actually going to find out that the, the crowd that came home struggled pretty severely early on to come all the way out of exile because guess what they did? They began to intermarry with foreign wives right away. Now, why is that bad? Is it wrong to marry people from different races? Or yeah, Well, it's wrong, New Testament and Old, to marry people that are not in the Lord. Now, let me clarify this before I get in trouble. It's not wrong to be married to someone who is an unbeliever. It's just wrong on the front end to marry somebody in the first place who you know is an unbeliever. And that's exactly what the children of Israel did. They, they said, you know what? All right, I've come back home. We're building the temple. We're on the way. This thing's happening. Hey, I, you know, I remember what it was like to dabble in that other religion or to know people that that don't believe the way I do, and they begin to intermarry. And it so frustrates Isaiah that he rips his hair out. He rips his clothes. He repents and organizes a way for the whole nation to repent of this evil. And they do. But it's a messy transition. Christianity is the same way. Guess what? You are on the same kind of journey as these people were. This thing comes 21st century pretty easily. 1 Peter chapter 2 well, one, verse 1 says that all Christians are sojourning through a land that's not their own. It calls Christians elect exiles. That's the, the literal translation. We are exiles. We are purposed by God to be here transitioning through. Now we find a safe haven in the church together, but ultimately we're to stand out as a distinct people different from the culture and society of the world going heavenward, where our citizenship is not here, it's not Babylon, it's not Persia, it's heaven. And the whole call of Christianity is not to just build buildings or go to certain places, it's to be transformed in the heart, right? To come out of exile all the way in our hearts, where we are given over to the will of God, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we're exuberant, or whether we're sad over our sins. We're called to go all the way home to God in our hearts. And that's the call of Ezra, to come all the way out of exile, to come all the way out of obscurity, to come all the way out of being invisible, to come all the way out from behind the curtain, to come into the light, to come back to the homeland of God where you are identifying yourself again as the greatest city in the world, the city of Zion, because God's blessing and presence and glory is there, right? That's why a temple is built in the first place, is to... to Set forth God's glory for the world to see. Yeah, that's another major idea in this book is not just coming all the way out of exile, but coming all the way back into God's glory, which is God's presence. Anytime you talk about a temple in the Old Testament or the New Testament or the new heavens and the new earth, what are you talking about? You're talking about God's presence. That's what you're talking about. That's a theme that spans scripture. All the way back to Genesis 2 where Adam and Eve are in the garden. Who were they walking with? They were walking with God, talking with him. They were in his full presence. They sin and then they're kicked out of the garden. And there's a, you know, an angel with the flaming sword to keep them out of 
that immediate and direct access to God and presence. And then you have the theme in you know, the Exodus where the millions of the Jews were following the Shekinah glory to the promised land. And ultimately, they, a temple was built in the promised land where God's presence and glory was on display. But because of disobedience, Ezekiel says that the glory departed. And that temple was burned to the ground, okay? We've talked about that. But then God now is saying, look, you're 100,000 people strong. Go back to your land. Go back to that same foundation. Rebuild the temple of God because God's glory is going to show up one more time again. The second temple of God. The symbol of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said as he walked on the earth, he said, listen, if you tear that temple down in three days, it'll be built up again. The temple is a symbol of himself. And in the New Testament, in John 1, it says that Jesus came to pitch a tent among us. The glory of God came in the face of Christ in the New Testament. And then we are, as 1 Peter chapter 2 says, living stones now, the church. You know where the glory of God is now? You know where the presence of God is? It's in his church. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is in you. And as we gather together, we represent the temple of God where Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 4 says we're being built up as the body of Christ, as a temple of God. And guess what? We're an imperfect version of that because one day in Revelation 21, it says that the new heavens and the new earth are going to happen. The world will have been burned over and then there's a recreative work where we will experience physical heaven. Not some sort of nirvana, you know, ooey-gooey, rich and chewy sort of state. No, we're going we're gonna to be physical beings, resurrected beings, unhindered by sin, in full communion with each other physically. Probably dancing together, worshiping together, for sure eating together. Jesus, when he was resurrected, he ate physical fish, right, to show us what the resurrected life would look like. We're going to be in heaven together enjoying that. In the fullness and presence of God. But here's the litmus test. Just like these children of Israel coming out of Babylonian captivity, coming out of Persia, coming all the way, needing to come all the way out of the exile, they had a question that they had to ask themselves. Do I want to come all the way out and come all the way forward into the presence and glory of God in Jerusalem with the building of a second temple? It's one thing to sort of Take a step out and say, okay, I'm going to hang on to this in my life. I'm going to hang on to this relationship. I mean, perhaps we'll, we'll just sort of uh, connect it to the sins that they were involved in. I'm going to stay, you know, I'm going to date this non-Christian or, or flirt with these non-Christians or, or this non-Christian relationship that could turn into adultery. I'm going to hang on to that, but I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to step out and, and try to go for God. It doesn't work. You've got to let go of the world the sinful dimensions of the world, the sinful appetites, the sinful ways that exile is still clinging on, you let go of that and you step forward to follow God and come all the way out of exile and to come all the way into his presence. That's Christian growth. That's Christian maturity. That's where it happens. Let me get real personal here. Just a, an idea that, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to put myself out there and, and sort of uh, go for it. You know, we're a church that's existed for 35 years, and we've got a great history, heritage, story, and we've always been connected to the Word of God. 
But as I have perceived uh, our church and the state of it in the last couple years, I think we're really still in a very real pioneering phase where we are still maturing. We're still capturing our identity as a local church, what we're all about. Every one of you as born-again believers, spiritual temples of God, you all have a spiritual gift that you are required to and commanded to serve with in the body of Christ, in our local church. That, that's who God has designed us to be. But it starts with coming out of exile. I mean, some of you have enjoyed being invisible here. Being invisible. Being, being locked into obscurity. And the call and command of every believer is to come forward and to put yourself out there and serve in the fullness of God, in his presence. And some of you might say, well, look, you know, I just don't have time. You know, you don't understand. It's everything I do just to come one time. And I don't want to discourage you if you're just trying to get involved in church for the first time and, and be involved in that way. But I do want to challenge you that a real reason why people often do not serve is they don't want to put themselves out front because when you serve and you show up and you, you have a task and a responsibility, guess what? People are going to ask you about your life. They're going to want to know who you are. Why are you standing behind this table? Why are you part of the sign-up? Why are you going on visitation? Why are you showing up to a Bible study? Why are you asking to teach? Who do you think you are? Who are you? Let me tell you about your life. And that's why oftentimes people don't serve or go all the way for God because they don't want to be exposed. It happens again and again and again. It's easy to hide in our comfort zones, but God calls us out into the light, into his glory, to be on the front lines for him. And when you're there, there's no, no other place you want to be. When you're fully out front serving God in his presence, because guess what? You feel the power of God, and you know that, look, I mean, we talk ourselves out of service. We say, well, I'm too bad. I've, I've stacked up so many sins that I'm disqualified for serving, right? I've, I've fouled, you know, four times, and if you're in pro basketball, okay, I'm going to go ahead and foul the fifth time so I can sit down. I'm fouled out of the game. I can't serve anymore, right? Well, you can't out God's will. If God is building his church, you can't disqualify yourself from serving somehow in his kingdom and being somehow part of what he is building because the only thing that really will last is his church. That's the only really worthy investment is his church. We have no other thing that we can guarantee in this life, but Christ promised that the gates of hell, death will not squash this church or any god Fearing local church is being built as part of his kingdom. That's all of what the kingdom of Israel represents is the future kingdom. And so we're exiles. We're on a journey. We're called to come out of exile. And we're called to come all the way forward into God's plan. Wow, I'm over and preaching. Okay. And I'm on page, what, three. <laughs> I knew I had too much, but I wanted to at least go there. Let me, let me get us to the very end, uh, which is point two. Point two is going to launch us into next week's sermon. Uh, number one, returning from exile, it exposes Israel's remaining sin, the residue that's there, and the call to come forward all the way in commitment. And number two, Israel's return exalts God's overruling power, meaning God's will and promises are unstoppable. This point centers around verse one, which is that God used a pagan ruler and worked through him to have his will be done. 
Why did he do that? Why did he use him and not some other spiritual leader? Why didn't he have Ezra stand up as his spokesperson? Well, we'll answer that in detail next week. Next week. But his plans are unstoppable. Amen? Let's look at a few applications. Number one, godly separation. And these are, I think, important for you to listen to. So either pay attention to the screen or, or find it over on the table. Godly separation from the world always begins with the heart before translating into action. Can I be so bold as to say that, you know, the Israelites landing back in Jerusalem and even building the temple, that that's secondary to the Israelites coming out of captivity and being pure of heart? Their purity of heart. Purity of heart always is what God cares about more than performance. Purity over performance every time, every step of the way. He doesn't want our sacrifice of lips that's external without a heart that's been first humbled by the gospel. Isn't the gospel so sweet? It humbles us again and again and puts us on good ground where we can follow God and serve out of a pure heart. Number two. What areas of the world still hold you captive in exile? And we've kind of talked about that. What is it that you're still hiding away, unwilling to let go of? There's no happier way to be than when you are free from sin's bondage, sin's captivity, coming into the light. Number three, privately confess areas. You can do this in your heart now. Confess areas of the world that you still allow a place for in your heart should do that. God is listening. Jesus is interceding. The Holy Spirit is prompting. What areas do you need to let go of and come clean before the Lord with? Number four, does the thought of God's immediate presence frighten you or comfort you? You say both. Well, it should. I mean, in one sense, God's presence is so pure and holy that we can't bear the sight of it. The angels in heaven cover their face in God's presence. Um, First Timothy talks about how God dwells in unapproachable light. Ezekiel and John both fell as dead men before the Lord when they saw him and came into his presence. Isaiah 6 said, I am being undone in God's presence. And so we should be afraid. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't want the chastening hand of God in our lives. But at the same time, God is your loving shepherd. And First John says, Perfect love casts out what? All fear. We are secure in the beloved. We're secure in him. And God is the God of second chances. So as you are repenting in the gospel, you should be leaning forward towards God's holy presence and light. We don't flee from the light. We are children of the light. So hopefully God's immediate presence is overriding your fears as a comfort to you. Number five, reaffirm your commitment to being part of God's house. You're called to be a worshiper. John 4 says God seeks true worshipers. That is a, a ministry in the church. Every time you worship, you're encouraging publicly, you're encouraging someone else to worship publicly and privately. We're worshipers. We're intercessors. We have a prayer ministry. We pray Collectively, we pray according to prayer chains. We pray for each other. We build one another up. People go through terrible things. People go through surgeries. People go through trials. We're praying for each other. And lastly, servanthood or being servants. I want to reemphasize to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, Each of you has a spiritual gift. You're called to use it. 
We're serving in the church. We are, we are priests. We are, we are people who maintain the temple. We are people like Ezra who are men and women of the book, the word of God. We've got the gospel message. We're serving each other and we're serving our world with the gospel to redeem people and bring them to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. It's